Hello, Hugh Ronzani here from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. And welcome, after five wonderful and varied concert series this year celebrating 30 years of Baroque music excellence, Paul Dyer joins me for the first time to talk about the year that has been, Noel Noel, and what to look forward to in 2020. Lovely to have you with me, Paul, today. Bit of a change from Alan. Hello, Hugh. Um, now, obviously, there have been some wonderful things happening this year with the 30th anniversary of the Brandenburg. Why don't we look at the year that has been so far? So among the celebrations, what have been some of the outstanding sort of moments for you? What mm. have been some of the standouts? So because of this, the special nature of the 30th anniversary, I really wanted to celebrate uh, with our namesake, which is the Brandenburg Concerto. So without doubt, to kick off the year with such an incredibly um, exciting, uh, challenging, and in many ways uh, being able to, to, to look at the orchestra this far down the track, 30 years, and just say, how would we have played the, the Brandenburg Concertos 30 years ago and where mm. are we now? So that was a very exciting thing to do, to be able to give any musician, classical musician, an opportunity to play Bach uh, in, in such a strong way has been really thrilling. So that was the first series for the year. And was Bach a starting point? When 30 years ago you were forming this idea and, and this orchestra, um, was Bach one of your starting points? Is that why um, he yeah, is the namesake? good question. Uh, I think the namesake came out of a, a range of things. First of all, uh, many people don't know that the trading name for the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra is in fact the Brandenburg Ensemble Limited. So that's a company that that Bruce Applebaum and myself registered as a non-profit company of which we're members. And uh, the original name of the orchestra was the Brandenburg Ensemble. Right. Which then changed to the Brandenburg Orchestra of Australia, yeah. which was the clumsiest thing <laughs> possible. And uh, we decided that that was a no-go, yeah. uh, that we really should do something. But what I really wanted was the Australian Baroque Ensemble or mm. the Australian Baroque Orchestra. But someone had already registered the name but never used it actually in Victoria. So right. I was quite keen to have the word Baroque written there. Uh, and so, you know, I was very young during that time and I, I didn't really know that much about marketing. I, I just had a passion for for wanting to have a period instrument orchestra that were fluent and, and, and part of the fabric of the city and, and the country. So I, I knew that I didn't... The membership of the orchestra was, in fact, national. So it was very important to represent a national uh, word in the name. Uh, it, rather than Sydney Baroque Orchestra or the Sydney Brandenburg. And, and was it national because uh, to find the right people you had to look more broadly? Or, or was it national because you had always envisaged this orchestra as being a more national sort of thing? Both good questions uh, and observations, and both are correct. So first of all, I wanted it to be a national orchestra, uh, and I didn't want to pigeonhole um, people. You know, there are many... Uh, arts organisations within the country that are just specialised within the city that they come from. But I wanted also to spread the seed, so to speak, of, of Baroque period playing by introducing musicians from as many states and territories of Australia as possible so that it might 
hopefully grow in those cities and and start a big. Uh, it was like the mothership kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and gr- grow it has. I mean, we have players from all over Australia and guest artists coming everywhere um, uh, from around the world. Indeed. It, it's, it's In fact, we even had, at one stage, we even had a Baroque Oboist from Darwin so we and <laughs> someone from Tasmania. So we were represented uh, at that moment with every state and territory, uh, Canberra, Darwin, and, and the smaller you know places like Tasmania. So that's, uh, that's shown its fruit. But back to the the Brandenburg Concertos, I suppose, that the um, the original concert of the Brandenburg in January 1990 was in a festival called the Mostly Mozart Festival, and uh, our birth uh, was in a room called, which is now called the Utzon Music Room. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, it was the reception hall, and it had hideous green carpet. And we all we had twenty one rehearsals for two concerts of two different programs. Right, that seems like a lot of rehearsals. Well, it is when no <laughs> one's ever played a baroque violin before. Oh, right, <laughs> uh, or a baroque oboe, uh, and you're sitting in a room and you literally don't know what you're doing. We and it needed to be a long room because I'd ordered um, gut as in the strings for the for the violins, violas and cellos, from America after doing a lot of research with my, um, my colleagues and, and friends from Europe where I'd previously been studying. And I, I eventually got all of these strings and we sat down and it was cheaper to buy a whole thread of gut which you could cut up yeah. according to the size you wanted. <laughs> and so we sat down in the reception hall for the very first... Um, Rehearsal, and I remember it was very funny because the 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 late Richard Gill, um, who was a teacher of mine, uh, came along um, to the reception hall, and he was extremely excited. And he came in about fifteen minutes after we, after the ten o'clock scheduled starting point, and everyone was still sitting on the floor cutting up gut. And he said, "I'm here for the birth," <laughs> and I said, "The birth is taking a long time. It might have to be cesarean." Uh, whoops. Uh, so anyway. Oh dear! Um, it was uh, that first concert. It was a lot of rehearsing, but you've got to imagine that mm. an ensemble that had never played together, played together, they many of the players didn't even know each other. Mm. Uh, they were playing baroque cellos for the first time. They were navigating strings, a different bow, mm. a temperament, a different pitch. The wind instruments and horns were, you know, navigating a. Um, an exciting but treacherous mm. uh, new, brave new uh, pathway. Mm. So I decided to put together a program for that, which included the third Brandenburg Concerto, mm-hmm. which brings us to your original question about you know, some of the highlights mm. and standouts for, for our 30th anniversary year. And uh, one, and and that first one has to be the Brandenburg Concertos. Uh, so exciting! I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, that's the ex- that's the concerto I've been using for our introductory music for the podcast. Oh no! It's just it's just so fabulous, and yeah, and, uh, yeah it works. It it's works very well. That the the last movement for that there was a little anecdote. Um, I knew the concert hall stage very well by this stage. I'd performed on on, on the Sydney Opera House concert stage many, many times. Uh, but after that performance, we, the last thing on the program was the third Brandenburg Concerto. And we started at a breakneck speed. We really wanted to show off. Mm-hmm. We were all young. Uh, and we all felt like we owned a Ferrari, but and we were trying to drive it for the first time. <laughs> but, so it was a breakneck speed. And I remember finishing 
and the last note came to an end and the whole within a few minutes the whole concert hall which was packed not a seat left 2620 seats uh rose to their feet because it was such an occasion mm. and we had many many people from other arts organizations supporting us and 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 edging us on and yeah you know it was, mm. a, it was very much a, a very historic moment uh and i walked off stage i took a, my first bow and walked off stage and i collapsed <laughs> in the wings of the sydney opera house bruce was on the side of the stage bruce yes. Applebaum, and yeah. he raced down to the green room of the sydney opera house uh, cafeteria grabbed some sugar knew that my blood sugar level was, was, too, was low. too low and that i hadn't eaten for days and uh, and that was my memory of the third Brandenburg Concerto, <laughs> a breakneck speed and an exciting performance. And how have things evolved since then? Obviously, preparations for the Brandenburg Concertos, our first series this mm. year, um, were quite different. Um, what, what's different now in terms of the players and their approach yeah. and, and your work with the, the players? Well, funny, funny, before I go to the artistic content, um, the very first thing that I think of are two little anecdotes. The first one is um, when I was talking with Bruce about forming the, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra and I needed a, I needed someone to help me with just basic things like um, money, applying for grants, airfares to get my colleagues from, from Europe and Japan to come for, for that first concert. There were four of them. Mm. How to get people from interstate? How do we pay for it? Where does that come from? Uh, and what letters do we have to write? So the first thing that comes to, to mind is a typewriter. So a lot of people don't even know what that is. <laughs> but when I was 25, uh, there weren't computers. And so we enlisted, um, I enlisted the assistance of a, of a wonderful woman who passed away just a few weeks ago, uh, Jane Val- Dr. Jane Valentine, uh, Mary Valentine's sister. And she... Uh, we were allowed to use a little back room of Music Aviva in Sydney and uh, use the typewriter to be able to write letters to people to say, the future Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, we'd like, you know, just mm. basic things. So that was a, a little important thing. She enlisted a, a great, because I was so passionate and so excited about the birth and, you know, this starting this thing, and I was really. You know, I didn't sleep. I had maybe two hours sleep every night for 10 years. Oh, my gosh. It was just so exciting, and I just lived and breathed this thing, and and I was so, um, you know, it was just the way it should be, really. So she enlisted a friend of hers who worked for Music of Eva, and her name was Shauna Kelly. Mm -hmm. And Shauna was very, uh, very good at... um, uh, at computers which were just starting at that stage in this, I'm talking about 1989. Mm. So Music of Eva had, had these and she worked for them. So I remember, and I've kept this beautiful document and it said, good afternoon, I'd 
Dear Paul, I'd like to introduce you to the brand new first letterhead of the brand new, wonderful and exciting Brandenburg Ensemble Limited. This is the letterhead that I've chosen. As you see, it's black and white. And when you're rich and famous, like other arts organisations we know, and have a staff of 20, like other arts organisations that we know, uh, you can have not a black and white, but a rather rich plum colour as your letterhead. And so I, when, when we composed our, our second letterhead and, and Shauna had moved on and Jane had moved on and Bruce and I were just doing it, uh, Bruce said to me, do you want colour or black and white? And I said, are you kidding? Can we afford colour? And he said, no, but let's go for it. So <laughs> we did. And that was a rather rich plum colour. And I remembered this. Uh, so to the musicians, probably the most surprising thing is that the standard and of I think it comes through urgency and will and newness I suppose mm-hmm. is that the standard of the very first concert performances of the string players was so high that I listened to our very first recording now uh, which was actually 1991 uh, and think wow that's just mm. Just outstanding. I mean, you know, the arrival of the Queen of Sheba's string playing is just breathtakingly beautiful mm. and wonderful. And and some of those early recordings. So looking at how it's more or less uh, a generational change. It's a knowledge base. It's a different approach. Mm. But in those early days, I had a um, I had a model, and the model was me mm. and what I thought. I wanted it to be not a European Baroque orchestra. I wanted it to be an Australian Baroque orchestra. So that meant a certain freedom. Mm. We had our knowledge, we had our scholarly way of approaching things, but it had a freedom which the country has. Mm. Uh, and I'm sure you'll agree as a composer and uh, an artist yourself that, and having worked in France and England those times, that coming back to Australia, you had this... Your thoughts are developed by that stage and you can have this freedom and approach to music making. Yeah, and I think talking about freedom and that sort of uh, freedom of approach, uh, Noel Noel is sort of like your embodiment of this. Uh, it's yeah. it, it, Every year uh, you can throw into it whatever you like. It's been Celtic, it's been Maori, it's been literally everything uh, throughout the 20 years that Noel Noel has been going on. Um, and, uh, and maybe we can uh, come along to that. Uh, for you, uh, obviously, this wasn't uh, something that you imagined at the outset, or, or was it? You know, 10 years later on, it That's started. a very good question. Um, I realised very early on in our, in our um, first 10 years that a lot of the music that was presented in the Baroque period was choral music. It, and not only was it choral music, but it was choral music uh, that was religiously based um, and or celebrated a court situation, which is a hierarchy within mm. a, a, a European country. But it also had a particular sound to it. And I knew that I'd developed this, the Brandenburg period instrument sound already. That was starting to come, that was formulating. When there was an identity, there was a stamp, and people started to identify not only the sounds of period instruments, but also the Brandenburg. So with that, I thought boy trebles were a very important part of the religious choral music making. Uh, So do I start sopranos, altos, tenors, basses, sopranos being the female lot and the rest as male altos? 
and then, uh, of course, men singing uh, tenors and basses. Which route do I go? So I decided that the the early choir was only 12 people. Mm. There were three of each voice time. And I chose females as sopranos and a combo of male, alto, and actually there was just Peretta Ankarit, yes. uh, who was the, the countertenor. But that started a... Uh, a very um, earnest and vigilant thing to start the Brandenburg to say we're missing out on this enormous repertoire of choral mm. repertoire of uh, of choir and orchestra together. So that's really how it started. But there was another reason for Noel Noel tradition of which has now been twenty years, and that was that I wanted to celebrate um, this the festive season of of the end of the year. And of course, we use the word Christmas these days. Uh, with a kind of loose fitting, you know, mm. it's not as religiously based as it was. But it, when Christmas was Christmas, it was really religiously based. It was about yeah. the birth of Christ so, and, and in Europe. So I wanted to celebrate that in different places. Mm. And I wanted to get out of the concert hall and I wanted to kind of get to, the, to as many offbeat places as possible. And that started by going through Sydney into suburbs of north, south, east and west. Yeah, and uh, obviously I can attest to that. We have literally been all over all over the the east coast, at least. Uh, we've never gone to the west coast, so far as I know, for a Noel series, but uh, <laughs> maybe in the future. Yes, we've done the orchestra, but sadly not not the choir. Now, uh, how do you go about building your Noel programs? Obviously, for a lot of people, uh, Noel might be the first concert that they come to of the Brandenburg. Yeah, um, and and they'll see some uh, things and hear some things that. Are quite traditional, um, but then uh, the combinations, uh, as, I, as I hinted at earlier, can be, you know, very varied. Uh, how do you go about bringing together a, a program like that? Well, when I began the Noel tradition, I I was very much drawn to Latin. So the starting point was really the Gregorian tradition. And so a lot of the early music that uh, started the, those early programs was based on on, on a Latin Gregorian tra- tradition. Then I moved into country codes, the French tradition of the the Charpentier Mass that was written uh, based on on the carols and, and there's this enormous wealth of of French carols that were written in the Baroque period by Charpentier. So that started me off in thinking about how I might cross-fertilise places, languages and traditions. Noel has been basically a potpourri of little pieces, often 20 to 25 pieces of music. I wanted it to be without an interval as well, so it had to be substantial enough for people to sit in one place and not feel like they wanted to have an interval, but they wanted to go on this lovely Christmas journey together. One of the very first things I did was to use sounds of Christmas, and that was bell ringing. The bell ringing tradition of England, for example, was huge. I don't mean bells from a church, but I mean handbells, mm. and handbells are really specific. They're like the Brandenburg, who are very... Um, they, they give a certain flavour and character and sound which evokes Christmas spirit or evokes charm, evokes beauty. And the moment those bells start, you can feel the, everyone in the audience just goes into a childlike state and, and, and feels beautiful.
Now, tell me a little bit about uh, Morgan Balfour, our soloist for this year. I looked on uh, on the last 20 years of programs recently, and I noticed that I started to do instrumental programs with choir. Yeah. And then uh, over some time, I started to introduce special instrumental artists that would be part of that program. Um, from then on, I started to use various uh, singers. But the very f- one of the early Brandenburgs, and if if not the very first one, was with beautiful soprano called Sarah McCliver. Um, Sarah, I brought over uh, when she was just she just finished as a student, uh, and I brought her over to the East Coast and introduced her to the world of music on the side of the country. And of course she's gone on to have a, a spectacular career. So having a soloist, a soprano soloist, has been something that I've loved. And this year coming, uh, Morgan Balfour is is going to be our guest soloist. I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that she's coming from the USA, where she's currently uh, doing some postgraduate study. And uh, in terms of fitting uh, her voice into the Brandenburg sound, the Noel sound, um, what are the particular items on the program this year that she's going to be uh, singing in? Well, that's an interesting thought, because uh, take a soloist who has a often a big voice. Uh, In particular, Morgan uh, is studying uh, the world of opera. Now, she gravitates because of her light, agile voice. She's able to, uh, and also extremely high voice, Mm. she's able to sing repertoire that that some sopranos can't. Uh, She's young and she's, you know, she's got it all. She's fun, she's good looking. (laughs) Uh, So traditionally, I have a couple of parameters with, with that. I can either do pieces of music for soprano and choir Mm -hmm. alone or I can do instrumental but knowing that I'll have just a string quintet and some sack butts and corn uh, uh, sack butts and uh, one trumpet and organ and thilbo so Mm -hmm. we're basically limited with with that the forces forces. it's not the big uh, Brandenburg string section obviously because we're we're mobile, for, as you know, mm-hmm. if you're singing in the choir, that we're mobile, we go all over the place from day in, day out for these concerts. So I've chosen for her um, to start off the program to show her voice uh, some handle. Chose it with you, actually. Um, a, a very well-known piece of music from the Messiah that um, that it's done at this time of year. Rejoice greatly, because I like the idea of her stepping out in, uh, onto the forum and people saying, wow, look at that gorgeous-looking woman. Wow, now let's listen to She's singing something which is happy. Yes, gorgeous know. and talented. Gorgeous <laughs> and talented. So you get this kind of flow of energy and, 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 uh, and, and spectacular singing. So that particular piece of music shows how far she can sing it, it shows her range. The agility of the voice. the agility of her voice and the sharpness and and, and beauty of the voice. Now, looking forwards uh, to the future of Baroque and the Brandenburg, what's in store for 2020, Paul? More celebrations? Well, I suppose the the formula these uh, days, because we have such a a great subscription between um, Sydney and Melbourne and now Brisbane, uh, is that uh, not that we don't travel to other parts. We we have a big regional program, as you know. We have a great education program. We do a lot of work in hospitals. We do a lot of, a lot of work in retirement villages. Uh, but the main uh, stage program that we have, uh, to answer your question, has basically six series throughout the year. 
series one, two, three, four, five, and then the six being Noel that we've just talked about. The first one, I decided to bring back a great artist who is one of the most sought-after soloists in the world at the moment, particularly in the area of Asia. Uh, he seems to be... They can't get enough of him, mm. um, you know, everywhere. Xavier Demestre is is a modern harpist. He's uh, He plays not only the modern harp, but also he plays period harp. Um, he's just an experienced artist that, that that particular sound of the harp transports people to another place, whether it be in heaven with the angels or whether it be someone just looking at the sheer size and and um, and nimbleness of which you have to have to, to play mm. such an instrument. But also um, his dedication to to the soul of the music uh, mm. is really is quite profound. And so when we brought him out several years ago, there was it was an automatic decision that he would be fantastic. So he's coming with something called Vivaldi's Venice, which, of course, uh, sadly, right at this very moment, is underwater. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully by the time uh, our first series comes next year, uh, there will be no more rainwater in the fix Venice's plumbing yeah. <laughs> uh, and and but he's such an exciting artist and he's really thrilled to come back he loved his time with with the Brandenburg here in Australia yeah second up uh, we move into the classical period and I can't negate uh, the whole um, love and passion I have particularly for Mozart I was my early education was really carpeted with um with not only Baroque music, but also the period afterwards. In particular, not so much Beethoven, uh, but I gravitated towards the the, the very intricate, intricate playing of Mozart. And so... Um, and the... I, is, is that because a lot of people might not be aware of this, but the idea of the, the modern piano, this is a much later invention, and mm. that Mozart wasn't writing on, on an instrument similar to the modern piano. He was writing something on an instrument more more akin to what you grew up playing. Of course, uh, playing. he had no idea, you know, the, the, the modern Steinway grand piano or any any modern... Uh, hammered instrument like that wasn't invented. So when Mozart was a, a young a child, he was uh, still playing on the the harpsichord and the clavichord, uh, and then uh, was introduced um, to his first instrument by by a maker in Austria called Stein, mm. and his his first forte piano. And this was the new invention that they called the hammered instrument. So instead of the harpsichord being a plucked instrument. Uh, putting your finger on the key and through a mechanism the string is plucked. This was the first time an instrument had taken the opposite direction and that had the, instead of going up in the air to pluck it, it would go down in the air and hit the string, or I should say hit, but using... Strike. A yeah. Struck by a yeah. hammer. So um, this developed into the instrument that, that I own, uh, well, I shouldn't say I own, the, the orchestra own, um, which is right in this room as we speak. It's a beautiful copy of Mozart's second instrument. Uh, it was known as Hammerklavier, the, the, the clavier of the hammer uh, in German, and, uh, of course, forte piano in, in English. So, And they were all handcrafted, just like the harpsichords. They, they had no, there was no... Um, what's the word when you have a... Uh, um, when you have cars and then you 
just one after another. Assembly line. Oh, right. There's no assembly yeah, line yeah. <laughs> of modern pianos no, that, like this. They're all handcrafted we can uh, thank Gen- for their pianos. We can thank Ford for that, for that invention. <laughs> so yeah. his two you know, main instruments were the harpsichord and the forte piano. And, uh, and that's why every year I, I love to do a classical program. Uh, because not only do I believe the audiences adore it, but also it develops the player's ability within the band uh, because we play at a different pitch, mm. uh, which I won't go into now, but it's a higher pitch than we would in Baroque music. Um, and therefore the wind instruments of the orchestra have to play on a whole new instrument. Mm. So the, the classical um, era of Mozart had the oboes, the flutes, uh, the bassoons, the clarinets, they're, they're all on different instruments to what they would play on Vivaldi and, and Bach and Handel. Exactly, because as time uh, and, you know, instruments uh, uh, evolved over mm. time, things changed yeah. and, and technology got better and, exactly. and some things became easier and, and, you know, so technique has to be adjusted to that. So uh, then we, we go back uh, uh, to Bach, though, for the third uh, the third. Program. We do, and my inspiration for this one uh, was, in fact... One person. Over the last couple of years, particularly for our 30th anniversary, I was swinging my energies towards, well, I always have, is uh, is the young generation of players. So uh, without uh, quickly answer your question in a second about the third series, Bach's Violin, but um, I have always been a great... Uh, one for supporting young talent. Now, whether that be through the choir of starting off like yourself, Mm. being a young um, uh, undergraduate uh, at the Conservatorium where you were studying at the time and joining the Brandenburg Choir or and many other people that way, or second-generation players, uh, instrumentalists within the orchestra, singers. I Mm. have always supported people who hadn't really made it to the main stage yet. And that was part of giving the platform for young people to be able to step into the high flyers. Um, and what I've done here in Bach's Violin for our third series for, for next year is showcasing a young German violinist. Now, he's just breathtaking. I went over to Holland and, and saw him play recently in, in uh, a summer festival there. Uh, Jonas... Uh, I'm going to Schenderlein is is how I would Shen Schenderlein Schenderlein Schenderlein. Yeah. It's not funny. I've just referred to him as Jonas for for, for so long, long. Time and, <laughs> and directly to himself that I've all forgotten to to pronounce his surname. Um, he is a really interesting young fellow. He's in his early twenties, and he has a group uh, of all men in the group called and. Uh, called Four Times Baroque. Now, it's interesting that he's chosen a, a, an English and a numeral Four Times Baroque, and there was four of them. And they are the kind of new generation of presentation of music. They are committed, virtuosic, inspirational, and super fun. And they do all sorts of character things. They look hot on stage. <laughs> people, especially people my generation, love to look at them because they. it reminds me of myself 30 years ago. Um, but uh, what's interesting about this young violinist is that he has already worked it out. He, he has the ability to, with a, with a stunning technique, uh, he's wise and interesting, and he's also been mentored by one of the... Um, wonderful, wonderful orchestral musicians and soloists that I've 
uh, become good friends with him and brought to Australia with the Brandenburg, and that's Riccardo Minassi. Riccardo is an Italian um, and uh, with a Japanese uh, mother, so he has a, an interesting combo of the way he works. Mm. And Jonas spent a great deal of time sitting next to him in, in orchestras, um, in small orchestra, Baroque orchestras. So he's the nucleus for this Bach program. Um, I wanted to start it off as small and, and do just Jonas by himself and take various other Bach pieces uh, from individual mm. members of the orchestra and then get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we finally hit Jonas plays a violin concerto, then we have a concerto for three violins, and then we finish with the big Bach suite number three to use the numeral mm. three. Mm. Um, and mum's the word on who our three violinists indeed, are. <laughs> indeed. Now, what about our fourth series, Notre Dame? It's, Notre Dame. It, it really is uh, an intriguing one. Out of all six, uh, it's the one that um, strikes me as being the most interesting. But, yes. Yeah. Um, over the last years, I've decided that I wanted to do something unusual for one of the programs during the year. Now, this for, uh, one of the... the um, well, I'll just go straight into it. The, the world was hit by this tragedy, and, and the tragedy was this extraordinary cathedral in the centre of Paris, which is an icon visually. It's an icon for the country of France. Uh, it's a loved building... It produces amazing uh, emotions, and it's also a map. You know, to, it signifies a certain part of of Paris that you know well. In fact, you might even like to to describe what part of Paris that Notre Dame Cathedral sits. Well, Notre Dame is is on the Ile de la Cité, and it really is. When you talk about the center of Paris, it is in the center of Paris. And uh, l'île de la Cité uh, happens to be uh, essentially the part of France from where, um, after the Revolution, we get modern French. So the bourgeoisie at the time uh, chose the, the, the dialect that was being used here in the centre of Paris to become the national language. And it, as, uh, as one can imagine from just that assumption and then the, 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 the striking building it, itself, this has been a heart of culture and activity for hundreds and hundreds of years. So images of that building burning, uh, I think, shook uh, everyone mm. um, uh, who knew the building or had been to Paris or wanted to go to Paris to mm. the core. It really mm. was very, very um, striking and difficult to, to watch. So my inspiration for this was not only this, this numbing uh, shock to visually see something which was in flames mm. uh, and and the emotion that went with that. But it also struck me that of my own personal connection with that city, uh, where I'd played there, where some of my musicians who had gone to study in, or still do, the guest artists that come from that city, but also that this was surrounded by water. This was a kind of protected space. Mm. This was a space that we thought was untouchable. Mm. Um, and the other, the other important thing about this project called Notre Dame that we're doing for Series 4 is that the wealth of the music making that has come out of that particular cathedral. Not only French music, but Latin, Italian, uh, German music, uh, music from nations and cultures. Mm. Uh, it's perhaps one of the most... Uh, I'm making this up, but I know there's data to say that 
um, in terms of Europe, if you take the top three places that people want to go and visit, mm. Notre Dame Cathedral is, is, is up there on those. Oh, it, I can um, confirm it is actually the most visited tourist attack attraction um, in Europe. There we are. Um, and it, it's a fantastic uh, um, uh, place and st- still is, uh, obviously. And there is a huge project to rebuild Notre Dame. And this is a, a, a extremely important uh, thing that the French government is taking on, um, and and the wider community in the in, in the the global uh, essentially community uh, are coming behind it and, and sort of wanting uh, and helping to, to make that happen. Mm. But this program, so you talk about um, exploring the music um, of of Notre Dame and, and the wealth of that that has shared with uh, with uh, the world. Um, how how is it going to work? Is it do you mm, interesting question? I started this idea with the with the premise of engaging someone who is crucial to this project, Alana Valentine. She is an extraordinary director. She's an extraordinary writer. Mm. And she has a gift for seeing colour and movement in the same way that I do. And after a series of workshops, I said, okay, I want to present the music that comes from this amazing cathedral and this amazing city and this amazing country. Uh, And... French music is is not performed as much in Australia as as it should be, or uh, and I've tried to to bring in that music as much as I can. But this is the perfect vehicle for not only celebrating and 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 showing the music from that place uh, and what's come out of the cathedral, but also France and in particular Paris itself. I have to say I'm very excited about that program. And uh, also the the fifth series as well, because I didn't get a chance to see the Ottoman Brock program when it was first done by the Brandenburg. But the the Whirling Dervishes are coming back. They are. Um, as people who don't know the Whirling Dervishes, it's uh, it's from the Sufi religion, and uh, it goes back to the 13th century, where an amazing, amazing young man, and through his lifetime, Rumi, uh, wrote a series of inspired poems throughout his life. He felt light coming from from a source above and he was inspired uh, when he would go into trance to write these incredible pieces of poetry which then developed into pieces of music. He was so inspired that he wanted to move and as he moved he turned in a circle on the spot and the uniform that he would, the Sufis wore, oh, well, he, it, the uniform of Turkey at that time yeah. was in fact these long legs with a large, I, I suppose you'd describe it as a equivalent to a female dress. A skirt. A or skirt. Yeah, yeah. And then as he turned around in circles, the skirt would go out mm. and make a wave-like formation. And it had a very specific national Turkish headdress. And he would tilt his head. And as he went into this turning uh, idea of movement, as he was reciting his poetry, he went into a trance. Mm. And the trance connected him to... Um, to heaven mm. and he would extend one hand to heaven and one hand to earth and he would connect the two together and would be able to turn like that for up to uh, two hours at a time without wow. falling so i had the um the idea that i would love to look at the ottoman empire and see what kind of uh, spices and trade routes mm. and 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 interest in in uh, the Ottomans I could release into our mainstream um, Baroque um, 
part of Central Europe. And so I designed a program where an imaginary tourist would start in France, actually, mm. work his way through the countries, go right down to Spain, work his... And, of course, it's narrated by someone. Um, and, uh, mm. and it's a very loungy kind of con- concert. And then suddenly the Sultan's uh, instruments arrived from Turkey and we put them uh, in a specific place in the hall and then the dervishes come in and it's a religious ceremony yeah. uh, uh, based on the Sufism. And so we're bringing the dervishes out from Turkey, yeah. uh, not only the dervishes, but the musicians. And also, most importantly, the woman who is the 13th century descendant of Rumi, who's still alive. Wow. And she's like a Dalai Lama, I suppose, in, in, in that sense yeah. of, of, of her religion, which is Sufism. And, and one of the fabulous things that um, we often don't uh, recognize um, either in, well, in the West is that uh, a lot of the um, instruments that we now take for granted, these sorts of things like lutes and guitars and mandolins, actually came from that part of the world. And, uh, and Tommy Anderson, whom you've been working with for quite some time now, he, he could tell us a lot about that, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, and not only that, but my instrument too, Hugh, um, the harpsichord developed in the Middle East, uh, or what it now is known as the Middle East, and Constantinople, the first kind of harpsichords were developed there. So there's a lot of synergy between uh, going into the Ottoman Empire and, mm. and the sounds, and also the vocal sounds. It's so... Um, I've never, ever... When, when I brought these uh, dervishes and musicians out some years ago... Um, they were everyone in the audience was asked not to clap at the end of because it's a ceremony yes and i can't ever imagine or, or i can't reman- remember a concert like this that was so breathtaking where the whole audience left in silence without a single clap and it was very spiritual it's very mm. moving but it was also engaging and, and exciting yeah So it's been wonderful speaking with you, Paul, but I know you're a very busy man. You've got plenty to do today. Um, I'm really looking forward to this uh, next year of journeys and and travel and and essentially just, you know, a mixture of of some of what we do regularly, but also some things that are very exciting. Been great talking with you, Hugh. Thanks, Paul.